How about your last patient, Neil? So the last patient, this guy was a character. So he's 63, and he's a guy who I saw about three years ago who has had lymph nodes for, by his description, for a number of years. Finally, one of the nodes in his groin grew. He sought medical attention, had a biopsy. It was a chronic lymphocytic leukemia, small lymphocytic lymphoma, and came to see me after that. Again, when I saw him initially, we did the evaluation. He had pretty extensive adenopathy in the neck under the axilla, mediastinum, retroperitoneum, four to five centimeter lymph nodes. He also had a 17P deletion. And once again in him, he was asymptomatic, felt fine, and we decided to watch him again, get more data points, see what's going to happen with this guy. Unfortunately, I'd say within a year, his disease progressed to the point where although he was asymptomatic, you know, he was starting to impinge on the kidneys, getting some hydronephrosis. So this was a struggle. I treated him with ludarabine and rituxin. And this gentleman did not have a great response. Tolerated it very well, got six cycles, had a partial remission. Remission lasted for a short period of time, maybe nine months, maybe a year. And then the disease slowly progressed. He was, again, evaluated by one of our transplanters, which I certainly think is reasonable for somebody with a 17P deletion. He was worked up and he didn't have a match and felt that the risk of going through an unmatched non-sibling transplant was not worth the risk. So he was followed and we've subsequently been following him. And I thought the guy would need treatment a while ago, but his disease, although progressing, is slowly progressing, maybe a centimeter every six months to a year, completely asymptomatic, feels fine and is doing well. So, you know, he's not going to do well, but currently feels perfect. John, what are your thoughts about this man? Well, it was interesting to speak with him. I mean, clearly he is, in meeting him, he's somebody who was entertaining to talk with. And, you know, his approach to the disease was kind of take it as it comes, which is a little bit at odds with the 17P, this is bad, hanging over your head, you got to go do something even though you feel well. You know, and I'm seeing him along with Neil once he's been in this observation period, which you probably wouldn't have predicted, but he's done pretty well. And his feeling was basically, I understand this can turn on me any day and I'll deal with the treatment when I need to deal with it. But, you know, I'm doing pretty well so far and I'm living my life and I'm doing my thing. And, you know, we go from there. I think certainly it's reasonable. He's a relatively young, pretty fit guy who could certainly get a non-myeloablative aloe transplant if that was in the cards. And maybe, you know, one way or another down the line, he'll need to do that. But I think, again, this is an example of getting some time under your belt that, yes, you've got the 17P, but you've also got this time of observation knowing that it's kind of puttering along here. And maybe it's a ticking time bomb. It very well might be. But on the other hand, his quality of life's pretty good. And if you didn't have that 17P piece of information, you would not be tremendously worried about him and would just let things putter along. So, you know, it may play out that he's somebody that can get some mileage out of sequential agents in a more traditional way, despite the presence of the 17P. And, you know, he's also somebody who I think, given that he's been feeling well, the idea of using relatively non-toxic things, even if they have lower response rates, something like let's say a lenalidomide or like an ofatumumab or like a bendamustine might do the trick enough to give him some mileage over time. And again, I guess alimtuzumab would be in there, but not necessarily the next thing. Yeah, I think certainly reasonable depending on what the indications for therapy 
R, we had an interesting discussion about the cost of his, he's on Valgancyclovir right now as part of his prophylactic regimen already, and it was interesting. He had some opinions on what that's costing him and does he need to be on it. So it's interesting in that kind of context how much you know, the medicines that we prescribe but aren't directly involved with giving to our patient, you know, it was costing him a couple hundred dollars out of pocket and wondering if there were some alternatives. So it gave us something to think about, I think. Anything else, Neil, you want to say about this man? Yeah, the challenge I have with this in a lot of these cases is we do all these evaluations, particularly in CLL, to get an idea of the risk of what's going to happen with patients in the future. We do their ZAP70, we do their cytogenetics heavy chain rearrangement. And it's an academic exercise, at least in my mind, because what you see sometimes is the patient's disease is going to do what it wants to do. And they're going to progress as they want to progress. So we use all this information and I'm not sure it's prime time. And I think it adds a lot of angst to people. I know it adds angst and I'm not sure. And maybe Dr. Leonard could say, is it helping us? Well, I think Neil raises a great point. On the other hand, and I can't say I disagree, I think it's a reasonable perspective. And obviously, we're treating the patient, not just the lab test's value. On the other hand, you know, some might argue and some very good colleagues and friends of mine would say, well, look, nine times out of 10, it's not going to turn out like this. And for this guy, it worked out that way, or so far it's worked out that way, but you don't know how it's going to work out over the next couple of years. And many other people would have been on their second, third, fourth treatment by now, and it wouldn't have gone so smoothly. And again, I can't say that I disagree or necessarily agree with that, but I think that's also a valid perspective. I think the goal is that our prognostic markers are robust enough that A, your clinic and my clinic get the same value and that the value means the same thing. And then, you know, really that we have some more definitive ways of saying this person definitely benefits from going in one direction, this person definitely benefits from going in another direction. And I think that's one of the problems with the CLL prognostic markers. We're getting there, but unfortunately, we're not there yet. So I think they're helpful, but I agree with you trying to integrate them into all of our other patient care tools and in the context of our clinical judgment and the patient's preferences is not always so clear cut. So the last thing I want to ask both of you is what it was like today. You mentioned a little bit before, but Neil, can you talk a little bit more about what happened today? Did the fellow go with you incidentally? Yeah, he did go with us. He was pretty quiet. I think he enjoyed it immensely. He told me beforehand he actually listens to a lot of these tapes and gets a lot of his education from it. So for him, just being a part of it was tremendous. You know, I think from my perspective, it's hugely important because I don't think we or I all the time sit down with people who you've been taking care of for a year, two years, three years, five years, and kind of go, well, how did it feel in the beginning? And how was that? And how were these therapies? And what happened over the course of time? And the narrative is very interesting. And a lot of people, we don't do that on a given day or a given basis. And I think the patients appreciated it, you know, being able to tell their story. I think they liked it as much as we did. Yeah, I was mentioning to both of you before we started today, you know, that that has been an interesting reaction, John, in terms of the patients liking this kind of education rounds. 
Yeah, I think certainly subsets of patients like to tell their story. And I think we have different groups. And Neil, uh, you know, I think the group, whether this is, you know, 100% reflective of his practice or just, I'm sure the curmudgeons necessarily wouldn't have been so great for this. And we all have some of them. But, you know, I think for patients, it's somewhat therapeutic, I think, to tell their story. And some people, you know, want, they've been through a journey, they're in the middle of a journey. And being able to tell the story to somebody on some scale is enjoyable to them. I think the other thing is that patients, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, I think patients like the idea that doctors talk to each other. And I think having somebody else take a look at your case, not that we really, to be honest, very few, if any, of the patients today really asked me what I thought of their case, which, you know, I was worried about that, that I, you know, as you alluded to, that I was going to have to give an opinion. And, and really, they didn't, they didn't really ask that. And in every case, I think I would have agreed with 99% of everything Neil had done. But, you know, I think people like the idea that someone's looking at them or that you're in a practice, you know, Neil's practice is such that other people are involved and you're bouncing things off each other, et cetera, which is useful. And I don't think people appreciate that in their routine medical care and interactions with their doctor. It may not be so obvious to them, depending on the practice situation. Any other impressions, John, from the day? You know, I'll just tell you, I was a little skeptical of the format, but I have to say, having done it, I enjoyed it a lot. I think it really adds a lot to the program to be able to see the patients and get a feel for things. And, you know, Neil presented me that we ran through the patients before we saw them. And then after we saw them, my picture was very different. So interesting. I enjoyed it. And I think it adds a lot to it. So, you know, I like it. And I think it's a novel way to do this. So for what it's worth, some feedback. Yeah, no, it was interesting to see these people because when we make these clinical decisions, and we were talking about this, it's not straightforward. I enjoyed it. And it was really something that I haven't done something like this with my own patients. And I think it does give you a kind of soup to nuts. You know, when you look back with your retrospectoscope and you say, did I miss anything? Did I do anything differently in the context? And really, you know, thinking about the patient and the whole context of how it, it also showed me, I think, and reminded me how your decisions are influenced by what the patient, we were talking about this earlier, how the patient, you know, you can present things based on your bias, but you can present an array of options and present it to the patient, get feedback one way or another from the patient, and then that steers you in the direction that the patient is telling you to go in, which, you know, I think is a good thing, but something that we might not recognize as much. You know, we think we're in charge, but in fact, the patient may be more in charge than we think.